Welcome to the Building Confidence podcast brought to you by KPMG. I'm Michelle Hinchliffe and I'm looking forward to exploring how reform of legislation, regulation and best practice can create deserved confidence in governance, corporate reporting and audit. By talking to regulators and tapping into personal experiences of senior board members and subject matter experts, we'll lift the lid on some of the challenges around corporate reporting, the effectiveness of audit and the business ecosystem, all with a view to finding constructive solutions. And for our very first episode of our Building Confidence podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Sir John Thompson, Chief Executive of the FRC. He's joining me today to talk about the Bayes consultation on restoring trust in audit and corporate governance. This is a long awaited consultation and a very important milestone which brings together three independent reviews into auditing and corporate reporting. John, thank you so much for joining me today. When we first talked about this podcast, we thought the base consultation paper would have been with us, say, maybe at the beginning of the year, and that we would have had plenty of time to reflect. But as we all know, it hit our inboxes this morning, so I am more grateful than ever that you found some time in your busy diary to talk to me today. Now, my immediate reaction on reading the the bits of the consultation that I've been able to um, is that, firstly, it's a pretty comprehensive package of strategic reforms that has captured most of the recommendations from the Kingman, Bryden and CMA reviews. Secondly, that the consultation highlights that all stakeholders within the corporate reporting ecosystem, be it companies, investors, regulators, and auditors have a role to play in this reform. Now, you've probably had, John, a little bit more time to consider the consultation than most. So I'd really appreciate uh, your initial thoughts on the review. And is this the right package of recommendations to drive changes across corporate reporting? Well, thanks, Michelle. And can I first of all say it's great to be with you. So what's my first thought on the consultation document which the department has published? Well, I think, first of all, it's worth saying that it's really good that we've managed to publish it. We've been working quietly behind the scenes for a year or so with civil servants, looking at what Sir John Kingman, Competition and Markets Authority, and Sir Donald Bryden said, considering how they work together. Remember, there's a, there were 155 recommendations Uh, for change, and they didn't necessarily all come from the same place. So it's been great to bring those all together into a cohesive package of change. So it's very welcome that it's been published. Uh, We're very interested in as many people as possible engaging with it and responding to the 98 questions that it poses back uh, for people to respond to. It's worth remembering that what actually is before you now is um, setting aside the three independent reviews and saying, well, if, if a recommendation was made in relation to corporate reporting, corporate governance, or the role of auditors, then we just bring those together into a single chapter dedicated to that subject. And there are 11 chapters in the consultation document. There are a significant number of propositions. So the consultation document says what was recommended, what the thinking is, and then pro- Uh, sets out a proposal from the government and then poses a question. The reason there are 98 is because some of those propositions have um, options, so it's asking for some other questions in relation to how you might implement uh, the the proposition. 
So very welcome, I think. Is it the right package of reforms to drive change? Well, I think at this stage, it is the right package of reforms to respond to the three reviews. Uh, but that's not to say that this is the limit of everything that's going on, because there are a range of other things uh, which are going on. But I think the new reporting requirements, as per Bryden, are a good package. So you've got the new resilience statement, the audit and assurance policy, and new requirements to be transparent about your payment practices. Um, but the government's also clear that it's not taking forward the public interest report which uh, Sir Donald recommended to the government. So the two other things which are, I think are relevant over and above the consultation document are where are we going with reporting of um, ESG matters, in particular the impact of a company on the climate, where there is separately some further proposals from Bayes being published this week. And secondly, there is the whole question about the future of the annual report, where we've done a study called the future of corporate reporting. And therefore, the, the idea of a public interest report has been folded into a much broader project about the future of the annual report. I'm sure that many of your listeners will know that the the annual report has continued to grow over the years. Some of them stretched to four or five hundred pages long, and we've taken a step back and said, you know, is that the right approach? And we'll be coming forward with some other proposals there, with a view to reducing uh, the burden of government in relation to corporate reporting. I think that uh, that certainly would be very welcome because um, certainly the uh, the annual report has become quite large. I think speaking to investors, um, that they, they're often challenged where they find things in the annual report, but actually there's a lot of really great information and helpful information in there. So to be able to navigate through that, that detail um, and really um, focus in on the areas which are important, I think that sounds like a great way, uh, great way forward. Uh, and also encouraged to hear about uh, the uh, the developments around ESG. I think that's certainly on the topic of all the, the conversations I have with investors and with companies as well. Um, and again, there's a raft of uh, guidance out there in terms of reporting uh, and, and disclosures. But to be able to bring this together into one comprehensive package, I think, would be very, very helpful. So, um, so, so, as you've said, it's quite comprehensive, this package of recommendations. Uh, but, but are there any aspects in the consultation where you think they didn't go far enough? Uh, you mentioned the public interest statement was not included, but are there other things that you would have liked to have seen? Well, to be clear, when when the government's published uh, the consultation document, it's it's been... Um, the development of it has been a, a joint enterprise between us and civil servants. So the, the FRC uh, has increased its capacity and capability to do the sort of policy thinking that needs to take place. We've, we've been transparent about that expansion. It was one of Kingman's uh, recommendations that we simply didn't have the ability to engage in some of these questions. So we have enhanced our regulatory standards and codes division to bring in some people who are expert in various different aspects of regulatory uh, standard setting to do some of the thinking. So many of the propositions which are in the consultation document uh, were written by FRC colleagues and then they've been through the civil service process and then up to ministers and so on. So we have been fully cited on what's likely to be proposed on the ministerial engagement and so on. So it's very much a, a joint enterprise and therefore 
are there any parts of the consultation I, I don't think go far enough? The, the, I'm sorry, the answer to that is is no. Uh, we we agree with this consultation. We think it's a good, balanced, uh, cohesive package of reforms. I know there's a lot in it, uh, but we do think it's it's the right set of reforms for this point in our development. Brilliant. And maybe I can pick up on that point, John, in terms of there is a lot in it. We often hear about the negative side of increased regulation. Um, for example, it's going to be more costly. It will make the UK uh, unattractive and for investment. Uh, and recently, there, there have been a number of articles about directors' liability insurance doubling in the last 12 months. Um, so there is a lot of focus on the cost side, uh, but not always on the benefit side. Uh, and so, again, keen for your thoughts around this package of reform. And can it actually help British businesses grow and attract the investment they need, particularly in a post-COVID environment? Well, the, the straightforward answer to your question is that if you talk to investors, what they want is confidence in three things. They want confidence in the corporate governance arrangements within a company. They want to know the company's well run, uh, that the board is in control of the company, that it understands the, its risks, that it understands its internal control environment. Secondly, what investors want is high quality corporate reporting. So if they read something, they want to be able to place some reliance on that. They want to be know that, that they're being given a true and fair view of uh, not only the accounting information, but as Sir Donald Bryden pointed out, some of the non-financial reporting, which often, quite often includes metrics. So that's the second thing they want, high quality corporate reporting. And the last thing that, that investors want is high uh, audit quality. So when the auditors say, yes, this is a true and fair view of this company, and then there's you know there's more than that to the annual to the auditors report that actually they can place reliance on that too so they can place reliance on the board they can place reliance on what the board says in its report and they can place reliance on the auditor when the auditor says that everything's fine the uk has always been a high standards economy it's it's one of our great strengths and what we're doing here is is raising the bar but we we should be clear i think that for many companies which are already very well run, these changes are relatively minor. Uh, there will, though, be some impact on those companies which perhaps aren't as well run uh, as others, where there may be more for them to do. But the vast majority of companies, I think, will take this um, in their stride. Yes, there is some costs to this, and I'm very happy to talk about that if you want. And yes, it does raise uh, the focus on the role of directors, all directors, and in particular, non-executive directors, uh, the audit committee chair and members of the audit committee, you know, because it raises the bar in terms of things like um, minimum standards for audit committees. But all around, I think investor confidence in running the company and the numbers and what the auditor says, I think will grow. Brilliant. Um, and maybe that point around costs. Um, do, do you want to elaborate a little bit? Uh, around that and you know as, as you said if you want uh, an an attractive place uh, attractive environment to attract the talent you know there is always going to be some cost but keen for your thoughts on that yes yeah, so what's also being published today is the regulatory impact assessment so that's an economist's um, assessment of what is the cost of these reforms there are three that are more than insignificant the first of those is the introduction of a, a UK version of Sarbanes-Oxley, 
Uh, and there's clearly some lessons to be learned um, from the US in relation to their implementation of it. It's not going anywhere near as far as, as the, the US system does, but there are some costs in implementing that. Now, at the minute, the government's proposition is for that to only apply to the FTSE 350 companies. 50 of those are already dual listed. So it's, there's 300 companies in scope of implementing that. The second is the idea of an extension of, of, of the definition of a public interest entity. If, if colleagues are not familiar with that, that is the which companies are in scope in regulatory scope for the FRC. And Sir John Kingman recommended a fairly significant expansion of that, and the government's taking that forward. So for those companies who are being brought into scope, there are some additional costs because they are currently uh, out with the regulatory uh, environment, and they'll be brought within it. So there are some additional costs for them. And then thirdly is the idea of shared audit. We do actually think that shared audit would increase the costs, particularly for larger companies, we would increase the cost of an audit marginally. And we've been transparent about what we think what we think that is. Um, and again, that only applies to the FTSE 350. So exactly what is the cost and how does it lie, we don't actually know, in particular on particular companies, but we made an overall assessment of the cost. And those are the three areas where there are increased costs. I think the, um, the, the the benefit of actually doing this initial uh, assessment is that you can actually uh, form a, a view as to the benefits versus the costs. And so I think that's a, definitely a positive step forward to actually be on the front foot and publish the costs and to acknowledge those those costs, because then you can have a more balanced assessment. So that's certainly helpful to, 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 to see. Um, uh, in the in terms of initial reactions to to the consultation, John, there's been again quite a, 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 a some discussion and press around the clawback of bonuses for directors, which is I think one small part of the um, of the, the package of reforms, but it does seem to initially have have received quite a lot of attention. So again, keen for your views around that. So the proposition is to strengthen the so-called malice um, and clawback provisions. Now, those already do exist in the corporate governance code, but the government's proposition is to strengthen uh, strengthen that, and it's seeking views on what's an appropriate way forward. You know, should it be much more hardwired in the corporate governance code, for example, or or are there other ways in which it can be? Um, uh, uh, written into contracts for for directors. Uh, now, I actually think this is a good move because, um, as you know, you know as well as I do, the financial results can vary year on year. And actually, if if you're in a long term incentive package, uh, some of those are, uh, some of those rewards are annualised. Some are, are over a longer period. And what the government's exploring here and is fairly clear needs to happen is, if if a company collapses, it does seem rather odd that some of the executives can walk away with very large remuneration packages and there be no sort of recourse to that. So it's it's looking at strengthening the current arrangements uh, as opposed to bringing in something new that didn't exist before. And that may be a, a misunderstanding in some of the initial reaction uh, in the media. Okay, thank you. M maybe um, if we can move on to... Uh, looking at the the regulatory side um and these recommendations do come together after quite a long process i think that's that's dated back to 2018 with sir john kingman's uh, review of the frc 
Um, now that's nearly two and a half years ago. Um, and, and the proposal and uh, set out in the consultation is that there is a new regulator, Argo, which is brought into uh, place. Um, now, I, I know that you have been very busy since you joined the FRC, so you haven't been sitting there waiting for uh, the, the consultation to make changes. And it would be great if you could share some of the changes that you have been uh, driving at the FRC ahead of this consultation. Yeah, sure. So I think we've been focusing on five things uh, since I became the chief executive uh, back in September 2019. And I was very, so I joined after Kingman had reported and after the CMA had reported, but before Sir Donald uh, reported on, on his uh, study. So five things we've been, we've been looking on. First of all, we've been implementing what we can uh, without changes to legislation. So we fully completed and implemented 34 of the 155 recommendations and we have progressed and matured about 50 or so others so um so we've been just kind of pushing forward as confidently as we can with our existing powers beyond that though secondly we have been going quite a bit further than than our powers permit if you like by anticipating the changes which might have been in the consultation document i think the highlight of that for me has been operational separation I mean, you'd be familiar for that, but but just so we're clear about what that is, that is the the idea that the audit practice of a firm can be put at arm's length from the rest of the firm, and we we negotiated that on a voluntary basis with the big four, uh, all of whom have entered into negotiations, and we published our twenty two principles last year, and then we've honed them further um, in the last few months. So we've gone quite a bit further in anticipation that that would be recommended by the government. So I think that is a sign of our confident organisation, do what we can do, go go beyond that. I think thirdly, as I said before, we've been helping develop the policy because whilst there are clear recommendations from those three reviews, we actually have to weave into that other considerations, talking to a lot more people, thinking through what exactly would work in legislation and so on. So we've been helping to develop the policy for the consultation document especially as i said that we've now got the capacity and capability to do that um, fourthly uh, we've been starting some really early work on if we assume the consultation document did go through ultimately into legislation what would that then mean in terms of turning it into an implementable proposition so it's all very well for example to say uh well we're in favor of a uk version of sarbanes oxley but what does that actually really mean and what would companies actually have to do so we have done some early work on some of the really big uh, propositions in a consultation document so if i stick with that example we've uh, had some extensive engagements with the order committee chairs forum uh, led by a man called jock lennox which was highlighted in bryden's review as being uh, you know a group which uh, we could we could place some reliance on. It's about 280 of the 350 FTSE companies, uh, order committee chairs, and we've been engaging with them on, well, how could we implement this? What lessons can we learn from the US? How does it um, integrate with the Financial Conduct Authority's senior managers regime, uh, and so on. So we began uh, fleshing out, as it were, how the consultation would actually be implemented in due course. A lot more to be done there, particularly after um, people have responded to the consultation document and we've we've heard what they've said, uh, before we can then 
issue a sort of draft of what might happen and then people can engage with us on those draft propositions and we could mature them over time. And then fifth on my list is we've been out and about a lot. So, so John Kingman was, was absolutely right in his review that we'd become quite insular uh, in many respects and uh, no disrespect, we've come quite close to the big four. A number of members of our board were, were former uh, big four and he wanted us to sort of reset all of that. And so we've been doing um, a lot of work talking and listening to as many parties as you can, trying to work out what acting in the public interest really means. We've significantly enhanced the communications and stakeholder management function. So uh, there are a wide range of events now, much, much more than there were before, in which we exchange views, listen to what people are going to say, uh, in order to increase our ability to set the kind of codes and standards which are reflective of what people want. So I think those have broadly been the five areas that we've been pushing forward on. Now, we can always go further than that. You can do more, uh, and we will, we will need to continue to do more and expand as an organization as it heads towards being Arga. To, to bring that to life for a second, when I joined, there were approximately 180 people working at the FRC. We have, well, it's March 2021, that's 18 months. We're now at 320 we published a strategy for 2021-22 recently that said we needed to go to around 420. Uh, and then if everything which is in the consultation document goes through in legislation, we'll need to be around 500 and 550 people to carry out all of those additional duties and all of that additional supervision uh, too. So we've been enhancing our capacity. We've definitely gone further. We're a more confident organization. But that's not to say there aren't many more steps on the journey in front of us. Thank you. So, so clearly very busy at the FRC. Um, and, and as someone who is subject to FRC regulation, I think I can confidently say that the impacts have been positive um, in terms of the profession. So, uh, uh, which is sometimes maybe an odd thing to say for, for someone who is re regulated, but uh, I think we all want uh, good regulation. And so certainly we are absolutely moving in, in the right direction um, um, as a result of these changes. So, so thank you for that. Um, you, you did touch on operational separation. So maybe if I, I touch on a couple of things on the audit side, um, and again, as a firm, absolutely embrace this and think it is the, the, the right thing to do. But what would your um, advice or, or counsel be, uh, I guess, to me and other chairs of uh, audit of the big four firms in terms of the things we should be focusing on ahead of any new legislation? Because, you know, the legislation will take some time and I don't think we can afford to wait until then. So what more should we be thinking about? Well, thanks. So I think, to be fair, um, all, all of the big four have moved forward from where we were when we started the conversations with you uh, just before Christmas 2019. And, you know, that, that reached a, a head last autumn when we published the, the first set of principles, 22 principles for operation separation, which have then been um, further matured to a new version that we published very, very recently. Um, and I think all, all the four have moved forward in slightly different directions, but that's appropriate to their business. But I think we made really good progress against the 22, against the 22 principles. If I was prioritizing three things, if I was the chair of, of um, the big four, they would be as follows. I think, first of all, audit is a very human 
um, profession, actually, and I would focus on your people very much. So what indicators can you take from your people about training, deployment, sickness, turnover, opinions, um, you know, how much are they on board with the with the change journey and so on, you know, what's morale like uh, and so on. And we talk quite often to to you and your colleagues about, you know, how are your people faring, how are they doing uh, and so on. And I think pe- people are so vital to this business that I would, I'd probably start there. I think secondly, I'd think carefully about audit quality indicators. We did some research on audit quality indicators in 2020. We published a think piece on that, looking at how the seven largest firms assess the quality um, of audit. We we sort of compared and contrasted in an anonymous way so that everyone could learn one from the other. So I would continue the journey of audit quality indicators. What do you actually know about the quality of audit through things like the audit quality reviews from us? the Quality Assurance Directorate reviews from the Institute of Chartered Accountants of England and Wales, what are you learning from your own internal quality control reviews, be they cold or hot, as I think you call them. You know, what actually, what data can you can you gather together that's telling you about the delivery of, of audit quality? And then thirdly, if you stand back from individual, individual audits where you can get some quite rich data, um, all the big four are planning significant change, and there are slightly different places in the journey of change. And so how does that plan impact on future audit quality? And there are normally three dimensions to, to the change programs in audit firms, one that's centered on people, one centered on methodology, and one on technology. And that, they all sort of integrate and have interdependencies and so on. But you know, if you're going to introduce new technology, what difference will that make to audit quality? So I think I'd be very engaged on that. I had a, an, an excellent two-hour teaching from, from one of the big four about where they were going with technology, what difference it makes to things, straightforward things like sampling, for example, because you then have the ability to pull all the transactions of a financial system rather than a, a selection of transactions. You know, wh- And how does the use of artificial intelligence crawling through that that sort of data set what difference does that make to water quality so those would be the three things to focus on people indicators and the plan to change brilliant thank you i think you've just set out my objectives for the next few years so 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 thank you very much for for, for that um john if we now step back and look at the uh, two things i want to pick up on the overall package of, of of measures firstly around um the the individual recommendations there are, as you said there is a lot there i think the prioritizing and the sequencing becomes really important in terms of implementation but if you if you had to prioritize three recommendations from the overall package which which ones or can you prioritize and which ones would they be well, that is a really tough question because there are so many, aren't there? Um, but, I, but, but in anticipation that you might ask me to prioritise some, I'd, I would start, first of all, with the UK version of Sarbanes-Oxley. So I'm a great believer in personal accountability. So the idea that um, what we can actually say is you, the board, are responsible for the quality of internal control, and you're going to have to say something about that, and there's going to be Beyond attestation, there, there may well be an audit of what you say, I think, uh, drives a certain behaviours. So confidence in corporate reporting 
depends on the effectiveness of internal control and it depends on the effectiveness of risk management processes. And some of the most high-profile failures have been where there's been weak internal control and poor risk management. Um, and that erodes confidence to your earlier question. And so I think us stepping forward and saying, well, actually, we need the board to take responsibility to make this statement and then be subject to an order, I think is a, is a really good step forward. And I would, if I was on a PLC board, begin that work of thinking about, well, what are we going to say? How do we say it? How do we evidence it? Um, and so on. Now, I think many well-run companies would already have a, a really good idea about the levels of internal control within their organization, so maybe it's not that big a step, actually. Um, but for those who are a bit further back, I would definitely put some thought to that. I think second for me, and in sort of similar vein, is the proposition to enhance the quality of the work of audit committees. We, we should not underestimate the value of a, of a high-performing audit committee uh, in a company. And I, I, I have huge amount of respect for order committee chairs and for members of order committees you know i've been on them for more than 20 years as an executive but there are a whole series of propositions around the role of the order committee and what its work program is how it's focused on order quality how does it focus on internal control on risk management and so on and so forth so those propositions as a package and there's quite an extensive package there are ones that i think order committee chairs could take forward in anticipation that the legislation will ultimately uh, go through. And again, um, for the for high-performing order committees, I do not think some of them won't, there won't be any change at all. Mm -hmm. I will just stroll through it, particularly if they are financial services-based, regulated by the FCA. Um, but for some, um, then there may well be quite a long journey ahead of them. I was talking to an audit committee chair the other day who said he's actually the only person on the audit committee. Now, that's just that's really not going to be acceptable in the future. You've really got to do something serious um, about, about that. So a package about audit committees. And then thirdly, um, the operational separation question in the firms, right? I mean, the idea that the audit discipline should be at arm's length from the rest of the firm. I mean, many of you have already taken big steps on that on a voluntary basis but for listeners that are not familiar with it it includes things like an audit board to oversee the audit practice with a non-executive chairman a focus on how to drive higher levels of audit quality clarity on financial stability and uh, and, and sort of inter-firm financial arrangements and an oversight of partner remuneration and um, the 22 principles overall we we believe uh, is a cohesive and integrated package of changes that that drive the audit practice to really clearly focus on audit quality and deal with a series of other issues which people you know bring into this about you know, cross selling and financial financial independence and and all of those kinds of things. It deals with all of those, I think, as a cohesive package. And I, I want to say, I think all four of move forward, still further to go to mature to bed down and so on but i think we're well on that journey so those would be my top three brilliant thank you thank you for that um i'd, I'd probably agree with you and perhaps throw in that confidence and trust in in corporate uk so um again just any reflections on the timing of this given uh the, as i said the broader demands on government time uh, as as we move forward particularly where we need to make changes through legislation so to give you some a, a sort of big handfuls, con the consultation is until July the 8th. Mm -hmm. So people have got 
um, nearly four months to submit responses to the 98 questions. You can submit a response to one or, or to all 98 entirely, entirely up to you. What would follow from that is a, is a period of considering the responses to that before legislation can be brought forward. And then it's, you know, we're in the hands of the government's overall legislative program. But the regulatory impact assessment makes an, makes an assumption that AGA comes into being in April 2023. And there's been some comment on that today in the media about, you know, is that too slow? Why can't we get there quicker and so on? Uh, but the assumption is April 2023. But I think I should also make it clear that that, that does not necessarily mean that every single one of the changes in this 220-page document would all come into being uh, in one financial year in 23 or say year ends 31st December 2023 we have got to think through and we will separately set out a sort of implementation timetable and it's perfectly possible that what we will do is to implement some of the changes in 23 some of them in 24 some of them in 25 we may even add shadow running and all those kinds of things but it's I think it's pretty clear already from some of the engagements I had in the run-up to the publication, that, that the obligation is on us to say who's responsible for what and when do we think it needs to take place, but but to uh, to try and calm any fears that you know this enormous wave of change is going to come all in one go in 2023. I would say that's not that's very, very unlikely. We will think about phasing it in as a package of changes over two or possibly three years. Brilliant. I think that's uh, that that will be pleasing for everyone to, to hear, um, and and particularly, um, I think people are keen for change. So let's let's get on and make the changes that uh, really will drive the benefits. Maybe final question, John. Um, if if we can move forward five years, and you're looking back to identify what was the biggest driver of change that helped build confidence in the corporate uh, UK. Um, whether it's from the consultation or outside the consultation, maybe it's something you've already done um, already. What, what, you know, can you identify what you would hope would be that biggest driver of change? Well, like it's super difficult to pick out one thing from this. But as you, but as you rightly, I think, said uh, uh, earlier, what's actually what's actually happening here is is the sort of the entire ecosystem around 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 companies public interest entities needs to engage further and everyone needs to raise the standards. So the, the one area where we definitely need uh, a step change, I think, is with investors. Where we need investors to be much more engaged in corporate life, to understand the companies that they're investing in, what's really going on in, in those companies and in corporate life and the risks they're running and their financial results and so on. And if you talk to the chairs of the PLCs, there's a constant refrain about our oh, investors are too passive, they're really not engaged, they don't really understand, the whole thing's done by rope. And that is why we significantly changed the stewardship code uh, just over a year or so ago to try and raise the bar to say, you know, you're, it, it, you're the investor, you actually really own fractions of this company, but you need to get involved in understanding what the company does, how it's run what its culture's like, what its purpose is, how it's delivering, what its business plan is, and so on and so forth. You cannot be as passive as you are. And there are some investors who are right at the forefront of this and are very much engaged in, in corporate life to just understand what it is that they're investing in, right? Because in the end, they're investing uh, your listeners' pensions, you know, mine too. 
and we need them to be much more engaged. So that's not really referred to in any great depth in, in the consultation document because of the stewardship code, but I think that would be a really significant additional driver of change in boardrooms. Brilliant. Look, thank you so much, John. That's that's all we have time for to, in uh, today's podcast. But I hope all of our listeners agree that we've covered some really important ground today. So thank you uh, very much again uh, for sharing your views, particularly as the consultation was only released this morning. Um, you referred to Jock Lennox, and actually in our next episode, I'll be talking to Jock from the Audit Committee Chair's Independent Forum about the new director responsibilities relating to internal controls and also some of the options put forward in the consultation about what a UK controls framework might look like. Uh, Finally, please do like, share and subscribe to this podcast to receive future updates. Um, And thank you very much again for your time and goodbye for now.